Welcome to the Speakings Podcast. My name is Sandra. I'm a writer and philosopher in training as I'm currently a PhD student. And in these episodes, I speak about philosophical and spiritual topics in a mainly unscripted way, as I hope to capture some of the dynamism of thought that philosophers have to really wrestle with each idea, taking them seriously. And I hope you do the same as I present these ideas to you. You can leave reviews or email me to let me know what you think. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. I've been thinking about what it means to be human. (laughs) I've been thinking about this because I've been thinking about ChatGPT and other tools and how they both mirror and challenge our self-definitions. Humans must define themselves by analogy. What an analogy does is it demarcates difference even as it relates those differences. We can be like apes because we know that we are not identical to apes. And throughout time... We've defined ourselves both as a little lower than the gods in Christian theology and as simply a little higher than the apes in Darwinian theology, let's say. The more I think about the ways that we analogize ourselves into being, the more I see the analogical nature of all of our reasoning, of all of human knowledge. Rupert Sheldrake said something about how scientists ask for one free miracle and then they'll explain to you everything. But everyone asks for one free miracle in order to get started in this abstract realm of thought that we inhabit. Every academic discipline is based on a founding metaphor, a foundational as-if, a tautology that cannot itself be described. The system cannot describe or explain, let's say, cannot explain that which possibilizes explanation within that system. The rules of every intellectual world that we create are senseless outside of that world, but they are the possibilities of sense within that, within that world. And so, a theorist, a philosopher, a physicist, a scientist, a whatever, <laughs> name your discipline, says, give me one free miracle. Give me a starting point, and I'll build you a world. But that miracle itself cannot be described. I've been thinking a lot about the Western worldview, and I understand as well that to even speak of the West as if it were a monolithic entity is 
a bit absurd. But the thing about the what we call the Western worldview is it is quite a strange animal, <laughs> sort of like humans. Sure, they're an animal like other animals, but we are quite a strange animal. And so we can talk about ourselves as if we were quite distinct. One thing that is rampant is a form of mental objectification, let's say. It's called many, many things in those who critique this worldview. But one way you can speak about this is that the person is excluded from what the person is in fact thinking. This person that is very real and very animal is excluded from what we have built to be the world. The world becomes an abstraction, something manipulable in scientific experiments, but not experienced qualitatively not experienced by embodied beings. Now this may sound strange to you, it may not even sound like it echoes your own experience, and yet we have this strong bias towards biological abstracts, abstractions, the biological abstract, while excluding the biological senses. It's very strange. Even what we call empiricism, which ostensibly is the experiential study of the world, excludes experience in most cases. It's all built on this very abstract model. I will try to make it concrete as much as I can. One thing that I hear a lot of is this idea that oh, that's just biology. (laughs) Okay, so what is just biology? You could say this about all kinds of things, right? When a woman is on her period, it's common for others, men and women, even the woman herself, to think, oh, it's just my hormones. Same when you're pregnant or there's other hormonal changes happening in your life. It's just hormones. The female body is fascinating for many reasons. And I love tracking this in myself because I certainly feel it from week to week, these variations occurring in my body, attuning me to different realities in the world. And I could say, well, that's just biological. And yet, I could say something else. I could say, Just because I'm PMSing and I'm more attuned to the negative doesn't mean that the negative isn't real, because it is. In fact, and I can't tell you an exact study, I can look it up if anyone is interested, but I do remember um, reading somewhere that women's perceptions when they're PMSing are more accurate. Now, what does that mean? I've also read that optimists are less realistic. They don't see the world as clearly, and yet we often want to be optimists. We want to see the world in a better light. The truth is, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, whether you're PMSing or you're ovulating, which is the happier time of the month for most women, not all women experience 
their hormonal changes in such a marked manner, but I certainly do. No matter what your attunement to the world, it is true that attunement is true. It's factual. It's being felt. And it's an excess of that. If I'm PMSing, I know that what I'm seeing and feeling is true. But reality is so much more than just what I am seeing and feeling in that moment. I know that my life will continue changing. Things will seem much better and much worse and much different. Different is perhaps a better term to use here. So my experience cannot exhaust reality because I am one person. And yet it also cannot be reduced to one cause. It's not just the hormones speaking. Now, this this can be seen in other places as well. Sometimes if you admit that you have a personal bias against or towards something, your opinion is discarded. As if your personhood itself was an obstacle, an obstacle to objective reality. So again, it, it goes back to this preference that we have for the abstract and the objective. Rather than thinking of reality as being, let's say, a composite of all personal experiences and more, there's always an excess of what we can think what we can experience, what we can say. Rather than thinking of truth as a gathering of diverse perspectives, we think of it as the exclusion of diverse bodies. And I don't mean that it's like a racist or sexist thing, though of course these things are linked. Because it's not done in that conscious way of exclusion, but that's the bias of our worldview is that Reality is that which excludes particularity, particular persons, particular bodies. Something that is often distilled into a single cause and then dismissed because it has a biological cause. Which is really fascinating because on one hand, the biological is the determinant. Everything is just biology or just evolution, just natural selection. And yet, the biological, as experienced by the body, as experienced by the person, is not taken into account as being true, let's say. Only the abstract idea of biology, the theory of natural selection or evolution, is taken to be factual. Whereas the living experience of these things are just you know, relegated to that psychology stuff. And even psychology has become highly scientific and abstract, but at least psychology in its lived forms of interrelations and conversations between a therapist and a patient. Or it's relegated to, you know, literature, memoir, art, film, 
That's where experience belongs, but not in our explanations of the world or our understanding even of ourselves. Here is something subtle that I want to get at, and it's a thing that I'm still wrapping my brain around. Sitting down and speaking like this is such an exercise in vulnerability because I am really speaking outside my comfort zone because I'm not speaking of things that I have mastered. And I hope that no matter how much I advance in my academic career, this is always what I'm doing. I'm always grappling with ideas that I don't yet understand because that's where growth happens. So let me try to explain what I'm getting at here. I started with talking about ChatGPT, and I find this so fascinating because as we analogize ourselves into being, we looked originally to other animals, tried to self-define through animals. Often, you know, these early paintings and engravings of humans and animals combined, right? something with an animal head and a human body or vice versa. There's a strange shape-shifting happening where humans are learning to be something other than animals in our self-definition. I'm not saying that we truly are other than animals, though of course we are in excess of any definition, uh, whether that's animal or God or um, our current definitions like Stochastic Parrot, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the company who created ChatGPT, he was responding to someone who called um, ChatGPT just a stochastic parrot, which is basically saying that it's just based on probability models, there's no real intelligence there. Sam Alton, Altman replied, well, we're all just stochastic parrots. And this fascinated me because interesting people like um, Megan O'Geeblin, I think that's how you pronounce her name, she wrote a book about metaphors called God, Human, Machine, I believe, God, Animal, Machine, about the ways that our metaphors shape us and shape the way we see the world. She wrote about how cognitive science, for example, was built on the one defining metaphor of computation. This is what's interesting about self-defining through our tools. Before we could self-define based on exclusion and then analogy with the natural world, specifically with other animals. And with that as a form of self-definition, we remained quite animal, even though we wanted to distinguish ourselves from that. Now we are increasingly surrounded by our own creations, and thus we are self-defining in terms of what surrounds us. This is simply the way that we move through the world. If I'm surrounded by 
plastic objects. What does plastic do? It sort of deflects the gaze back onto myself. There's nothing truly living about a plastic object. Nothing self-sustaining. There's no history embedded in that. I don't look at it and think, I wonder what tree this came from and what forest, um, what the weather was like in this forest, right? I'm not saying this is how we think of our wooden objects, but we could, especially if it's a hand-carved object that has value for you. Now we move through the world among quite closed, human-made entities. Now some of that mystery is maintained in the, way that we, in the ways that we interact with modern technologies that we don't understand. There's a mystery there, but it's not a mystery of personhood. We know that ChatGPT doesn't have sentience because ChatGPT doesn't have a body. And though sentience is more than just a body, a body is required for sentience. We have epistemologies that are very body-exclusive, again, even in philosophy. We like to exclude the body when we speak of intelligence, even though ChatGPT, who can speak, who can use our abstract symbols... I say who as if it's an entity again. We have to speak anthropomorphically like this, even though it's untrue. ChatGPT has never seen red. It doesn't know what red is like, what it's like to see it. And in fact, that sensation of seeing red is fundamentally untranslatable. You can't find that sensation in a brain scan. You can find what parts of the brain light up when it sees red. But you can't find the actual sensation. That's what philosophers called, call qualia, or these, um, these perceptions that only the person has access to. Okay, so now we self-define through our technologies. And if, for example, computation is the guiding metaphor of computer science, then you cannot make a single intelligible statement about the human mind inside the discipline of cognitive science without using a computational metaphor. And Now that's fine, that's inevitable, it's a discipline. What's dangerous is people believing then that the brain is no more than a computer, a machine, we talk about this all the time, input, output, productivity. We treat ourselves like machines because we are surrounded by them and we are surrounded by the metaphors that we use to self-define. That's what we are immersed in. This is what Jean-Luc Marion would call kind of conceptual idolatry. Now the way I understand this is we take something that we've made and in an absolutely absurd act of reversal we believe that that thing made us. Now when Christian theologians and other monotheistic Religions speak of idolatry. It's a very 
pagan-hating misinterpretation of idolatry. So I want to be very clear that when I speak of idolatry, I'm not speaking of religious objects. I'm speaking of the movement, the conceptual movement behind our self-delusions. And this conceptual movement is that we take one cause that we can find in the world and we trace ourselves back to that cause. This is so absurd and yet you see it everywhere. It, it attains even cosmological proportions in certain philosophers who say, for example, that we are most likely living in a video game. I believe Neil deGrasse Tyson said that there's a high chance of this, and there were, uh, there's many others, many others who think that this is a high probability. What's funny about this is all of the ones that I've read are actually um, avowed atheists, often quite um, dogmatically so. And yet what they're doing is such an interesting kind of creationism. They're creating a creation narrative or mythology based on some hyper-intelligent species that created us <laughs> in a video game, which is fascinating because it implies a few things. One, that there is some sort of creator, <laughs> right? Creator of a video game. So that's, that's a very theistic move. It's not even a kind of theism that I would believe in. I don't believe in a creator god. I find that to be really strange. And two, it implies that something that humans created, a technology that we stumbled upon, was somehow preordained <laughs> that we create it and that existed somehow in a platonic realm before it was created. And that was the model upon which we and everything in existence, including this minor technology, was created. Now what I'm saying is, what kind of hubris does it require for us to invent something and then believe that this thing, this tiny thing that we invented, like a video game, is actually the model of the entire known universe. <laughs> and that we are trapped inside of it. It's fascinating. Jean-Luc Marion says that idolatry is when the gaze gets trapped in the object. This is the conceptual world that we live in. Our self-defining gaze, the gaze that defines us, is trapped in our objects, in our, in our technologies. We begin to think that we are nothing but avatars in a video game. We are nothing but biological machines. We are nothing but our biological urges. So we found ourselves in a very strange trap of self-conceptualization. Anything that we can think, any beginning that we can give ourselves, cannot be the true origin or the sole cause of what we are. It cannot be. Because we thought it. 
In other words, even thought is an invention, invention, an idol. We cannot find a single cause or single reality that describes what we are fully. Why? Because thought is not real. It's not fundamentally real, let's say. It's a technology that we invented. And then we began to idolatrize it. We began to think that it invented us. Evolution, for example. A brilliant theory. It's given us so much knowledge and clarity about the natural world, ourselves included insofar as we belong to the natural world. And yet, it is a conceptual container. It's a tool that we use in order to understand the world. The tool did not invent the person who invented the tool. The hammer did not invent the carpenter. Evolution is not our creator god. It is a conceptual tool for understanding our origins. It is not the conceptual tool. Now, what is the conceptual tool? There is none. There's no way to properly describe the origin of the human species or the origin of anything without reverting to mythology. Now, for various reasons. I'm speaking only of self-understanding here because our concepts are all tools and they cannot have created us. We can only create them and use them in a very provisional and humble way. But also because something cannot come from nothing. And even the Big Bang doesn't purport to explain that. The Big Bang, Bang is a mythology. Well, it's not a mythology. It's a scientific theory that describes what happened milliseconds, if not less than that, after there was something. It doesn't explain the something. Only a mythology can. Now that we've cast radical doubt on the origins of all academic disciplines, it's back to ordinary life for me. My daughter is knocking on my door, and it's time to go play, which is a great way to end any intellectual discussion and to conduct an intellectual discussion is through an attitude of playfulness. So I would love to hear if these thoughts make sense to you, if you agree, disagree, have any questions, please let me know. And thank you for listening.